And we are live. Welcome to the Citadel Builders podcast. This show revolves around discussions with pleb builders actively looking to create and develop circular economies, advance the use of Bitcoin for long-term savings and day-to-day transactions. We aim to raise the awareness of dangers of ever encroaching government and corporate surveillance, showing people how to take practical steps to increase their privacy and sovereignty. In so doing, we aim to add our voices to those fighting to reduce the corruption made possible by fiat money and its destructive consequences. Block by block, we build and participate in a circular Bitcoin economy of free and sovereign individuals. This show is hosted by we three gentlemen, the ever pessimistic Doomer Dash, the over competitive Meta Mike, and me, the always affable and amicable Andy. We are a value for value podcast. So if you enjoy the content, send us a thousand sat. Thank you. And as always, we begin this episode with Dash doing a Japan segment. Dash, what's going on? Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Um, hello, gentlemen. Hello, listeners. So, yeah, just wanted to update you on a couple of things uh, this week. One is my favorite topic, um, CBDCs. Um, all of this, uh, one of these sources, by the way, that I'm talking to, I'm getting from the, the Nikkei, uh, which is the largest circulation newspaper in, in Japan. I consider it the official mouthpiece of, of the party of, of the LDP out here, because um, usually what they write about, you know, comes true shortly after. Um, and, uh, I was just going to say as well, so if, if any of the listeners out there have any, you know, conspiracy theories, please, please get in touch and let me know because, uh, unfortunately all, all of mine have come true. They're all sort of mainstream news stories now, but, um, the, um, so, so starting with the CBDCs, I had reported on a, on a previous episode that a company out here, which is one of the major credit card companies, uh, JCB, um, was doing a pilot from October last year um, where they were, they were working with a fintech company uh, called SoftSpace and a French-based uh, facial recognition company called Edemia, I believe is the pronunciation. And they were doing a pilot in Tokyo whereby they were looking at how to use a plastic card um, and how to implement survivability so that if there was a, uh, I mean, the reason, of, the reason that they used the plastic card was to make it sort of very accessible. So even elderly people would be able to use this technology. And the reason that was the focus on survivability was that, um, you know, as, as I, uh, yourselves and listeners will be aware, there are things like um, earthquakes, uh, typhoons, et cetera, in Japan. So it, it is a sort of top of mind and a concern of people out here of, of, of you know, what, what, what would we do if the infrastructure went down? So that had been going on until earlier this year, and um, then things had kind of gone quiet. Um, but there was an update uh, last week, um, and that was that they are now looking at so the plastic card that they had been using originally. Um, we found out now that they're doing another trial using the My Number card. Um, and um, so just 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 to give people a quick sort of description of what the my number card is so that the my number system is like the social security system in the us or the national id in in the uk um actually in japan it didn't exist until 2015 um and it was launched in 2015 sort of stealth launched on the population as far as i'm concerned uh, they just sent everybody out a notification here's your number um uh, in the fall that year um and the idea was that the um 
you know, we'd, we'd increase the efficiency of government by everyone having this number because they'd use it for pensions, they'd use it for uh, tracking taxes and things like that. Um, they'd make life more convenient for people. Um, you know, one example of, for that is that you can use your My Number card to go to a convenience store here to issue um, certain government documentation for example if you need to submit that for uh you know kyc and things like that you can actually get that from the convenience store um and also the third goal was to make a fairer society apparently us having these cards was going to make uh, society fairer um and the current uptake of the my number card and so they sent the notification out but they didn't send the actual id card out uh, the ID card has a photo on it, has your address, et cetera, your, your details on it. And um, and so the government didn't, you know, the optics were bad to sort of force people to have an ID card. Um, there, was, there was pushback uh, or they anticipated pushback on that. And so they just sent the paper, you know, notification. And you have, the idea is you have to go of your own volition to convert that then into the plastic identification card. Now, the uptake has been slow. Um, so one of the good things about Japan is people are tend to be kind of wary um of, of these kind of things and um, especially the older people are you know um they you know they have memories of maybe um wartime things and etc and etc so there's this kind of natural resistance to to this kind of initiative but um i believe as as of late last year the uptake is now up to 60 percent of the population have these plastic cards and the government has stated that they want the you know to reach 100 percent um of adoption sometime within this year 2023 um to that end they're actually they have announced that they will be um, um, discontinuing the system of, of health insurance cards um, within but that's going to be 2024 and instead you're going to have to have your my number card um, to get to get healthcare in Japan so you know they're, 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 they're you know it was the sort of slowly boiling frog at the beginning but now they're, they're going full court press to to get everybody uh, to have these cards and then we're seeing the end game, right? When we going back to JCB, it's like, okay, going back to that third point about we're going to make a fairer society with the my number card. I mean, obviously details were very, uh, you know, there, there wasn't many details when they first announced this in 2015, but now we're seeing what, what that means, right? So JCB have permission from the government. Apparently they're working with a, a top ban printing corporation or, or, a, or a, a child um, subsidiary of, of theirs called uh, Top Pan uh, Forms to do this. I'm not quite sure what the printing company uh, has to do with this, but that that, that was in in the article uh, with the permission of the government. And th what what the idea is is that the local governments in an emergency scenario could potentially airdrop. Uh, money to individuals using the my number card and that individuals could then use the my number card to go to uh, shops and make purchases and the kind of um, the, 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 the excuse they're using to push this through is that in the case of an emergency like an earthquake or when the infrastructure was damaged and there was no power this system would actually record transactions locally on the POS devices, and then afterwards, once power was restored, once the infrastructure was restored, it would sync up, um, you know, th those those purchases. And so the idea is that even if you don't have power, even if you don't have internet, you can still use these cards to make payments. Um, and so you know, and they're saying that okay, you know, cash. Um, people might have cash, but unfortunately, the cashless rate in Japan is now up to 30 percent. I believe so. 30% of transactions are now done with um, things like PayPay, uh, LinePay, these kind of QR code uh, methods whereby, you know, if you don't have the internet, you, you can't, um, you wouldn't be able to make a payment.
Um, and so this is this is this is what they're saying. He's like, oh, we're worried about the people in case there was an earthquake and 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 they ran out of cash, you know, or they didn't have cash. What are they going to do? Well, don't worry, the government is going to come in and save them. Not only that, but the airdrop payments that we saw, you know, the stimmy checks, if you like, in, to use U.S. Um, language, we had those in Japan as well. But of course, there was a lot of paperwork involved um, to, to to receive those payments. The idea is. No, don't worry about it. We're going to make that a lot easier now. With the My Number card, we're just going to airdrop that overnight, and then you'll be able to go and spend that, even if there's a, a power outage or you know what, what have you. Um, another detail which I found interesting is the local government will get to set a spending limit on the card. Uh, the idea is, of course, there'll be a period of time where there's no infrastructure, where you'd kind of be trusting people's credit rating, I guess, uh, right? You, you sort of recording the transactions locally and you're syncing them up later. And so to kind of get around any potential, I guess, fraud that could happen in that case, the local governments will, will, will be able to set limits on what you can spend on, on, on the card. Not quite sure how that would be implemented in terms of enforcing it, but um, and so, again, what kind of president is that setting, right, where the government can now say, OK, you're only going to spend X a day? I mean, to me, it sounds like, you know, the beginnings of capital controls. Um, so, I, I mean, again, this is to me, this is absolute dystopia. I can't believe this is just being written about in the Nikkei. There's, there's absolutely zero pushback or sort of concerns about privacy or concerns about government overreach. You know, it's just being put, publicized as if, yeah, we're just crossing the i's and dotting the t's and then this is going to be implemented um but what do you guys think i mean could could the government not just ask people to please you know get a get some extra cash out of the uh, the atms and put it in your house just in case there's an emergency why do we do we really need these uh my number card plus cbdc's yeah i, I mean <clears throat> this whole thing is uh is uh is spectacular uh, considering it, w it wasn't just six months ago, they released something saying they weren't going to do anything. They they weren't planning on doing anything like this. And then the the, the pivot to uh, now going actually yes yes we will <laughs> we will be doing this uh, in 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 short order. Um, I don't know what exactly um, the the power structures look like in uh, in the government. I realize it's, it's basically a one, it's 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 one one party rule, but is there any is there any kind of uh, vocal resistance to this kind of thing? I mean, it, it's it's impressive that they haven't had the uh, like uh, a serial number type system until now. But is there any ongoing kind of pushback from any sector of the uh, of the political sp spectrum over here? There's there's zero that I see. And to any listeners who are listening, um, you know, who who may know about any kind of resistance, I pl I ask you please to reach out to us. Get you know, get in contact. Maybe um, value value uh, boost or even just an email or whatever. Or you know, reach out on Nostra. But I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen any political resistance um, from any parties. I haven't seen anything in the media. I haven't seen anything you know in social media. To me, it seems that largely the population is kind of unaware even that this this cbdc thing is going on like i mentioned earlier there was some resistance to the my number thing from 2015 but that was more like a passive silent resistance where people were refusing to go and get the cards um but unfortunately as, as you gentlemen know that the government is now sort of bribing people well they've got the carrot and the stick now right one is that they're giving people it's something like 200 dollars if they'll go and get the card the second is they're saying you're not going to get healthcare if you don't have the card and now they're up to 60 percent adoption 
now the message coming from the government is, hey, sort of everybody's doing this. And, and as you know, that, that can be a very powerful message in Japan. You know, people sort of don't want to get left behind if everybody's doing something. Um, and so unfortunately, we're sort of at the, at the point now with even my number card where the resistance is. Resistance is futile. You know, I, I, I believe it's going to happen. I believe they will get up to over 90 percent, probably near 100 um, percent adoption of that within this year or next year. And yeah, as for the resistance CBDCs, I, honestly, I think the majority of the population don't even have it on their radar. Yeah, it's hard for me to even conceive of your average um, Sato-san or, or Kaori around here even having the, 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 the ability to um, really put together the pieces here. Not, not, as a, not as an insult to the locals, but it's just such an abstract idea for most people that trying to resist something like this would require a fairly in-depth knowledge of, uh, and skepticism of of a certain uh, knowledge and knowledge and certain factors and skepticism of of certain power structures which they obviously you know don't have um so i it you know it japan had been a holdout for a number of things for for a while but the increased military spending the the alliances that are being drawn with the us this kind of cbdc thing it does make does make you look it does make it look like they are about to become a a a complete vassal state of the U.S. and uh, be a, a testing ground for a lot of the crazy stuff that the, the GA hopes to uh, implement across the world, right? Yeah, well, exactly. Well, to that point, and, and the next thing I wanted to talk about, or the, or the second uh, and last thing I wanted to talk about on the Japan update, was perhaps one area of to, what to me seems like resistance still to the, to the GA, um, the, the, the GAE, which is the 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 ten year bond, you know, the sort of rates and the yield curve curve control in Japan, where those rates are kind of are set at an upper limit of zero point five percent. I guess you know I'm supposed to say five hundred basis points or whatever. I'm not I'm not an economist, but you know what I mean. Um, and so that is where Japan is kind of diverging from the U.S. and the rest of Europe and the U.K. etc., which I find very fascinating. Now. And I, on previous episode, I had mentioned that there was a new incoming. Um, uh, he's a nominee right now, but it's, I think it's pretty much a done deal that U Ueda um, is going to be replacing, um, you know, uh, Kuroda, and he's going to be taking over from April the, that role as the head of the uh, Bank of Japan. And he was actually in the lower house uh, this week answering questions. Um, it's great that we have that transparency, I guess. Um, and you know, uh, they, they were pretty softball. Um, but he did, he, you know, he did have to clarify his position on a number of items. And you gentlemen probably noticed overnight that the yen had slipped. It's, uh, it's currently one, 136 when I last checked. Um, there was also, I believe, zero trading on the 10-year bonds, um, which, is, which is the first time that had happened in a couple of months. Um, interestingly, on the 21st of, um, this, of this month, we're still in February, right? There was um, briefly the yield curl control um, was exceeded. We got up to 0 0.505 um, and the Bank of Japan actually deployed 1 billion US dollars to defend the yield curl curve control. So there was some I thinking uh, back in the 21st that perhaps Ueda would look to, you know, get in sort of alignment with the other G7 nations in 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 raising rates. But. I mean, his his words yesterday in the lower house kind of kind of poured cold water on that, and I think that's why we saw the increase in the in the J, in the in the JPY. 
Um, and, but yeah, I mean, so there was there was some interesting nuance, and, and I'm going to try and sort of dig into that. But um, he, um, you know, essentially said that the loose money, loose monetary policy will continue until they normalize this kind of two percent target that they have for consumer price inflation, and that that has not been achieved yet. Um, they have, uh, as we know, exceeded the two percent inflation. We have more than two percent consumer price inflation right now in Japan, but the narrative from them is that that is just kind of a, a temporary thing. It's driven more by the supply side, um, you know, kind of supply chain or energy, um, and that that's not something that's kind of structural. And it's and there's nothing coming in from the demand side that would mean that was a kind of stable two um, percent. And so what they're saying now is that you know. They, 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 he will continue. He, he, he sees it appropriate to continue the current policy of loose monetary policy until they normalize, where they have a stable two percent going forward. So I think that's what the market has reacted to with the with the cheaper yen. Um, he's also said that um, that he expects it to be to take five years. He's at, he explicitly said five years um, for, for this normalization process to continue. So it seems to be in the short term, short even to medium term, right? I mean, five years is such a long time, but that uh, he's suggesting that these, you know, this policy is going to remain in place. Now, on the other hand, he has uh, used some interesting language, which is like he uh, mentioned, he's acknowledged that there's side effects due to this yield curve control. This is the, 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 the translation of the word he's used, side effects. Um, and that there will have to be some mind given to these side effects. Um, he's also said that once the, you know, the 2% um, inflation has, you know, has stabilized that they would consider then the sort of exit path. Um, so he's meant he's explicitly mentioned an exit path and a sort of normalization of, of uh, policy, but very light on details. Right. And, it, and it's all very vague and it's all very OK in the future once we've got this two percent. Um, and I looked at the history of the messaging from the Japan Bank and it's kind of subtly shifted over time where at first it was like, OK, we need to get away from deflation. So this 2% number isn't something that, you know, it feels like this has always been the line. You know, we've always been at war with Eurasia or whatever, but this isn't actually the case. So the initial messaging going back to, I think it was 1999, was that we need to break from deflation, you know, and this has moved from, OK, well, we need to get inflation. And then it's and then it's moved to, OK, well, we need to get 2%. And now it's now it's kind of shifted. So we need to kind of normalize 2%. And so, you know, the goalposts keep shifting. And it seems to me like this would have been an ideal opportunity, right? Because we have got over 2% inflation, that they could have pat themselves on the back and said, okay, well, we did it. And the rest of the world is, 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 is raising rates. And so, you know, we're going to use this as an opportunity to raise rates. And I know they effectively did that by moving from, you know, 250 basis points to 500 basis points um, with the yield code control. But it seemed like that was a very reluctant thing that they did. Um, and it seems like from the messaging, uh, you know, that we, we're getting that they're not looking to to increase any further from that, at least in the short, short to medium term, potentially up to five years, which seems completely out of whack with the rest of, the, you know, what the central banks are doing in the other parts of the world. And so I have... <laughs> I have no idea what's going on, how that fits in with the narrative of Japan getting in lockstep with the with the other G7 nations, which, Andy, as you said, in several other ways seems to be the case. But the central bank seems to be this kind of strange holdout. And I don't get it. But um, I don't know. G gentlemen, any thoughts on, on, on what might be going on there? 
Well, I'm curious. Uh, what what do you think the real inflation rate is? Because it's not, like to me, it seems like it's way higher than two percent. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and anecdotally speaking, I you know I met with um, with a few people. Um, earlier in the week and I was just getting some anecdotal kind of data points from different people. I had mentioned on a previous podcast that I've noticed like a roughly a doubling uh, of cons consumer goods, things like electronic goods, um, foodstuffs, et cetera. And, and energy has also gone, gone up a lot. That might be to do with my, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining, but um, the, um, but I, I actually got some data points from other people who um, were, were keeping a close track on things like food, for example, and their, their reports were like they've seen 150 percent from one person I heard and the other person. It was like roughly it was nearly 200 percent. It was nearly a double in the year since COVID. So in the last sort of three years and especially over the last year. Um, and so I, you know, for me, in and it's an and inflation. I mean, it's so hard to define right because it depends what you put in your basket and it depends on the time period etc um but just on it from what i'm hearing anecdotally inflation is from anything to sort of you know it's 20 percent or up to what you know up to 30 percent i mean uh, annualized basis in the last two to three years it's it's a lot higher than what is being reported um but that is not what the official narrative is of course but yeah to, to your point mike i mean definitely the inflation is a lot higher than than what is being uh, admitted to yeah i mean like i i find it surprising that they would even try to pretend like it's only two percent but that's i mean that's the like, same, same oh sorry go, go ahead uh i mean i was just gonna say like what are, are they listing the data or, or like are they putting the data out there and showing like oh this basket of goods went up by X percent, this one went up by Y percent? Because I don't think there's anything that has only gone up by two even since like in the last year. Yeah, I I haven't dug into what the government official number is. I just because I just consider it baloney. Because I know from my own experience, and I know from listening to other people that, that that's just a complete gaslight. It's a complete psyop. And so I haven't actually looked into how they justify that. I'm sure there's all sorts of Keynesian, you know, uh, uh, you know, bending reality, um, mental hand gymnastics going on to, to justify it. But I'm, I assume it's just the same as what we're seeing in, in the U.S. And, and other other places. Right. It's not like the official CPI in the U.S. is anywhere, anywhere in line with reality. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And but uh, I guess to tie it into what the other thing that you were saying about how Japan's monetary policy is going in the other direction from the uh, was it the G7 countries. Like at least the dollar on an international level is it seems to be strengthening. Like against the yen, it's strengthened a lot, right? But you have the yen relative to other fiats going way down. And then on top of that, prices in yen are going up here too. So like buying it's it would seem like the yen compared to buying things in, in another country like the US has gone uh, like the inflation's been skyrocketing. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, I just had this idea now, but it, I mean, it, the, it, I mean, I know we're going to talk about Taiwan later, but I was just, I just had this idea. I wonder if the U.S. it kind of suits the U.S. for the Japan to become this kind of poor, like to go back to being like a manufacturing destination, because I know the U.S. is trying to diversify from Taiwan a little bit with uh, chip manufacturing, for example, and one of the uh, factories that has been built is in, in Japan. I know one is in the U.S. as well, but I wonder if it kind of suits the the powers that be or the or Washington to have Japan's currency slide now so that they can go back to getting cheap goods and, 
you know, cheap goods from Japan, which is a more reliable source maybe than, than Taiwan and China. I don't know. I just had that idea. What, what do you think? Yeah, that's a pretty interesting theory. It also, I mean, that has potential benefits for Japan. Like it's always good to have a manufacturing base in your country, right? Like you, you can wield a certain amount of power that way. So it might actually be somewhere where uh, Tokyo and, and DC can shake hands um, because they, they'll do stuff here that, you know, the U.S., can't or won't do in terms of manufacturing right yeah and i yeah. think generally speaking the japanese people are way more competent than the american people are you telling yes, me so- my degree in gender studies does not equip <laughs> me to make a chip i take offense to that sir yeah i've, I've certainly noticed more more diligence in the uh Japanese population, especially when it comes to manufacturing. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it, maybe it suits everyone. I mean, to me, it doesn't suit the Japanese plebs, right? Um, because essentially Japan, to me, I mean, I've just revisited my whole idea of what's going on over here since really going down the rabbit hole with, with Bitcoin and, and, and the macroeconomic thing. But it seems to me like the petrodollar has forced Japan into that role of, you know, they need dollars for energy. And so how do you get that? Well, you, you make things better than the Americans and you, you know, um, you don't anger Washington and you go along with their policy and, you know, uh, policies, etc. Um, and then and so they'll give you access to their markets. And now you can go in and you can sell your goods and services um, to the Americans and get dollars. But it's like, oh, to do that, I have to compete with the Koreans, the Chinese, everyone in the world. I have to, I have to stay on Washington's good side because they could just you know, like we saw in the late 80s, um, where maybe Japan tried to assert itself a little bit, the Americans were like, okay, now it's a trade war. Now, so now you're going to struggle to get dollars, right? Um, so you're sort of beholden to, to the US, you know, and you've got to work very hard and very, very diligently to make those products to, to, then, to then make those dollars. So I'm not sure how good a deal it is for the, for the Japanese plebs. Yeah, and uh, well, on the subject of the microchips, like from what I, from what I know, I don't know too much about this subject, but like Taiwan is by far the world leader, right? When it when it comes to manufacturing those, and um, but now with the whole thing with, and then China is also another major one. So if if that's a threat to the U.S., where they can't necessarily depend in the long term for their computer parts on China and Taiwan, um, from what I understand, America is like significantly behind China and Taiwan in that area. In Japan, like ever since the what, like eighties or nineties, is way behind America. Even, like, is that true? Do you guys follow that at all? Yeah, from what I, I mean, like there hasn't been uh, much, much in the way. Now, the Japanese do have the Japanese historically have been god awful with software, but they've been better at at hardware. But they did turn that over a while ago, such that uh, now everything is 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 Korean made. I don't. I mean, I guess they have some small chip manufacturers here but uh it's i mean a lot of the, the information you have to get you, you have to be a specialist in it because you can you can take the the peter zehan line which seems like nonsense to me it's like the, the chinese are, are too stupid to make anything besides internet of things chips and america's great and we can produce you know ai chips from the 27th century um but it it, it seems to me like japan is probably in a good place that if they need to um reassert themselves in the in the in the hardware space they can they can do that in relatively short order i don't know what do you think 
Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I'd just argue again whether that was really good for the Japanese plebs. I mean, yeah, for, for, for the Japanese government, it seems like a sensible policy. Um, you know, they have, the, you know, manufacturing never completely left Japan. There was a, there was a tend towards um, opening factories overseas in China, etc. during, especially following the great financial crisis. Um, but the, the manufacturing was never hollowed out completely like in um, the US. And so there, there is still capacity here in Japan. There's also, like I mentioned, trends now the other way, which I know is the true of the US as well, but it's true of Japan where I, th I think um, Taiwan Semiconductor is actually opening a factory here. I believe that was you know, what I read. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in terms of Japan being able to ramp up its you know, pr prowess as a manufacturer, that's definitely um, something that I, I could see. Um, it would be beneficial maybe at a you know, government level to do that, um, you know, wh but, but whether people's lifestyles are going to improve. I mean, because Japan had been sort of moving into that more Western, like, oh, we're a service economy now. Uh, which essentially means like the, the global south was doing all the work and, and you know we just sit we was just you know sort of printing money and sitting on top of all the profits right and it, it seems like like japan is kind of going back now to more no you know you guys need to st start making things again so yeah, I, I i don't know how good that is in terms of just the average japanese pleb and and, and the average japanese middle class whether that's a good thing or not i don't know yeah it's like the meme uh tough times create strong men right exactly I guess that's a white pill compared to all the black pills that Doomer Dash has been dropping on us on this episode. Don't, don't, I, I actually, let's not try and tell. Let's not try and make Doomer Dash into anything but black pill incarnate. <laughs> there's another okay. white pill that I saw. Actually, I get. Um, I don't know if you guys follow. There, there's this newsletter called Grid Brief. It, it just gives you like energy updates. Um, and actually, there's a little section here that I wanted to mention. It's in. I guess it's relevant for. Um, inflation and also uh, the subject of en energy production in Japan. But this was interesting. And it the they had a little section titled The Death of Japan's Anti-Nuclear Movement. And it says, Asahi, an anti-nuclear newspaper in Japan, has just published a striking poll. 51% of respondents agree that nuclear power plants should be re restarted. Um, and how does this compare to previous polling? And then they talk about polls that they did back in like 2011 and uh, another one that they did more recently. And there's a clear shift in sentiment, like after the nuclear disaster, um, everyone, uh, the majority of Japanese people were anti-nuclear and afraid of nuclear. And uh, you can see that the sentiment has been slowly shifting over time. And now it's the opposite where most people are, are pro-nuclear and they want, they want to restart nuclear plants and also build new ones here in Japan now. And uh, obviously the main reason for that is electricity prices going up and they can see the areas of Japan that have nuclear energy. Um, the energy bill is way lower. And uh, it, they said that they got this data from the Nikkei and uh, like they did like a model household electric uh, electricity bill in a place like Tokyo where there's no nuclear reactors online. Tokyo was the the highest cost where it would be like Nine nine thousand nine hundred yen, basically like Ichiman, for uh, your energy bill in in the month of June, and then uh, the, on the lowest on the list would be Kyushu, where it would be fifty five hundred yen, so basically half the price because they have four nuclear reactors online there. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. I usually don't read these, but that one uh, stood out to me because uh, it was all Japan and nuclear, so thought I'd bring that up here. Not the. Thanks for that, Mike. And you had actually given me homework last week on, you know, we discussed whether Japan was still importing 
from Russia in a roundabout way. Um, I couldn't find a like de- definitive answer in, in at least the official, you know, party party approved sources on that. Maybe not surprisingly, but what I did see was uh, sort of in line with what you were saying um, that. Japan seems to be using this Ukraine situation as a as a, um, a kind of excuse to go, you know, pivot hard to the nuclear thing and 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 start up the nuclear reactors. You know, Japan imports, I think it was over 90 percent. I think it was something like ninety six percent of its energy, and previously like nine percent of that was 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 from Russia. And so to to replace that energy mix and to you know uh, control the price increases that we're seeing etc cetera, etc cetera. um yeah it seems nuclear is an absolute pivotal part of that uh, it's the the government is definitely driving that the media is definitely sort of gaslighting about how you know they're kind of tying it to the ukraine and talking about you know the sort of um how would you say the so if you're an, if you're anti-nuclear you're kind of pro-russia they're kind of kind of making the narrative like that um and as we know we cannot be pro-russia in 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 this current environment um and so yeah that seems to be that the way they're trying to normalize the the energy mix out here and, and and get some modicum of energy independence i also think you know time's a great healer and people have kind of forgotten um uh, about the, the fukushima thing now to, to some extent yeah yeah and i, I didn't um I don't know if Japan's also in on that, like indirect purchase of oil or gas. I mean, from uh, Russia. Um, I know that like the European countries are right, and they're going through countries like India as a middleman, so that they can say that they're not buying it from Russia, and then they're just paying a bunch of extra just to be able to say that. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember I was really surprised uh, looking at gas prices when I first got to Japan. This would have been like a year ago, and. Uh, I did the math because well, they, they use different units and everything here with like liters per yen per liter instead of dollars per gallon. But I did the math and it was actually like lower than most of the U.S., uh, pretty significantly lower, the gas prices, than at least like the more expensive parts of America um, here in Tokyo. And uh, I, I found that to be really surprising. And I think when I looked into, I didn't do any heavy research, but when I looked into where they get their gas from, I don't know if it was mainly from Russia. I thought I saw things like they're getting it from the Arab countries and from Brazil, I think, is where they're getting their gas from. But uh, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I, I, so, I mean, to your point, Mike, I don't think there was dependent on the Russians as the Europeans. I mean, I, I saw a number 9%. You know, I didn't dig into what what that breakdown was in terms of oil and gas, but um, and so you know maybe Japan's been a little bit more fortunate, and um, they've been able, you know, they they have they have a more diversified uh, uh, energy mix than the than the Europeans. But I mean, what what seems certain to me, and and it interests me that you said that the gas was 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 cheaper when you first arrived. But I'm sure. I mean, what are you seeing now compared to the states? Is it um, you know, is that does that change? Is Japan now considerably more expensive? Oh yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I don't even drive. Uh, I I just looked at it one time, so I, I don't know how it's changed since then. Okay, that that's us being. Uh, what do they? What did Winston Churchill say? Divided by common language. I I thought you were talking about LNG gas. <laughs> oh no no yeah I mean like the, the gas to fill your car in, in yeah the UK, yeah but yeah, okay you mean gas yeah okay yeah got you. Um, oh yeah, yeah. The gas. I, the gas bill at my like in my apartment is negligible, so I, I don't even know. Oh, that really surprises me. Then, so I thought, um, you know, I thought Japan had the highest gas, like petrol gas prices in 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 the world. So it's, I don't know, it's really interesting to hear to hear that data point from you. But I'm sure it must have Mike changed now. Yeah, if... Mike buys high. What's that? That's why. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it is high uh i just like i don't we, we like don't use gas for anything here i think it's just our stove is gas so our bill comes out to like 10 bucks a month or something so if it went to like 15 i probably wouldn't even notice yeah either way i think you know your point mike about um pivoting to nuclear is absolutely correct i mean that's probably also related to like japan's you know secret nuclear program i i don't i don't know sort of how to phrase that. i mean i i read once that japan if they wanted to they could put a nuclear bomb together in sort of you know a day or something and they certainly certainly have the technology and the resources um to do it if they needed um and with all the global tensions and then you know the sort of ramping up of the military etc you know i guess it would make sense on a number of fronts to uh to, to to have those nuclear reactors going again so i think we'll, we're definitely going to see that um you know going forward and uh and the ukraine situation has just given this ideal narrative to to drive that through so i i, I yeah i don't see any resistance to that uh going forward um yeah. yeah i think well i think the uh that's what i was saying about like the competence and the productivity and efficiency in japan it's uh it's crazy like have you seen any of those videos where they show like in, in I, I don't know if it was Tokyo, they build an entire train station and it takes them like two days or something. And then you look at like San Francisco or Boston or something. and It's like they've built a, they're trying to build like a bridge or a road or something. And it takes them 10 years and it costs like 10 times more and, and it's still unfinished. So I, I just see, it's like a totally different um, work style and uh, maybe a work ethic difference competence difference that you get where people are more coordinated and stuff here so I, I think that's why despite all the the doomer black pill news um i think a lot of things can turn around in japan pretty quickly in ways that they they kind of can't in the u.s you're determined to make Duma Dash's segment a white pill segment, Mike. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I like this, but, um, but yeah, but 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 on that pos on pos positive note, maybe we can, <laughs> we can move on to the uh, the builder segment. Yes, sir. Many thanks. Yeah, no, it's interesting to see about uh, Japan, and you know, obviously, we'll do this again on the we'll build on that in the next one. Uh, but for the builder segment, we will today look at RoboSats, and RoboSats is a relatively new peer-to-peer -peer exchange that only allows buying and selling Bitcoin with fiat over the Lightning Network. RoboSats allows you to use your own self-custody wallet, and it works if that wallet is connected to your own full node and is sent over Tor by default. It further protects your security and privacy by not only requiring no personal information, but also uh, randomly generating a new and fun robo account each and every trade. With a wide array of supported currency and payment methods, it works great in many countries, plus ensures your sats arrive instantly by using the Lightning Network. You can also host your own copy of it on a node OS like Umbral or uh, Start9, and it's entirely open source. But to use, you'll need uh, a Lightning wallet, um, as that's what's uh, used by RoboSats to send and receive funds. They have a, a compatibility list on their website with some recommended uh, uh, wallets being Phoenix, uh, Wallet of Satoshi, Albi, and Zeus. Whichever one you choose, make sure that it has funds in it for the bond, uh, which is usually 3% of the order. This bond is a security deposit that protects both 
the seller and the buyer. And you will also need to download and install the Tor browser because RoboSats runs over Tor. There are three main selling points um, according to RoboSats on their site. Uh, it, one, they say it's lightning fast. Two, they say it's absolutely private. And three, it's open source. RoboSats is an easy way uh, to privately exchange Bitcoin for national currencies. It simplifies the peer-to-peer -peer experience and utilizes the Lightning Network to hold invoices while minimizing custody trust requirements. You can find them and learn more about them uh, uh, on, on their site, learn.robosats.com. They also have Twitter, Telegram, and GitHub. Have you guys used RoboSats yet? I um I haven't I so the thing for me with these systems has has always been the like the the legacy financial system and having to interact with that I really don't want to do that and so my understanding with RoboSats is to receive the Sats is really easy and the privacy obviously is is great it's great that they use Tor and that you sort of get a new account each time um, which interests me a lot but the problem is is like how do you get the fiat cash to the other end and um, so what, what I, I've like personally mainly been focusing on sort of peer-to-peer -peer, like you know buying from fellow plebs or, or, or mining and that way I just don't have to interact with the existing financial system but uh, yeah um, I, I'm just not sure how to make it work I mean one idea I had was to use Amazon vouchers like potentially right so you could um, you can send someone the Amazon number um, uh, the you know you buy the voucher for and whatever and you give them you give them the the code and then they would give you the sats and i'm just not sure how that would work from an escrow point of view but yeah that's one idea i've had but i i unfortunately I haven't personally used that service yet yeah it seems like bisque i mean i i remember like uh looking at bisque and, and thinking to myself like there is no friggin way i am going to get this thing to work it's gonna take me 17 years which is my only problem with something like robosats is that uh you need you need to be fairly technical or you're going to screw something up and end up just losing money. So I, you know, I, I applaud RoboSets. I hope, um, I hope at some point to use it, but there does need to be kind of a, uh, a way to, to get this thing so that your average moron like me can figure it out without losing, you know, a couple hundred bucks uh, in, in trial and fail uh, interactions. To, to be fair, my understanding is RoboSats is a lot easier than um, BISC. I mean, a couple of the, the hurdles with BISC is one that it's sort of desktop only. They have a mobile app, but it only that just gives you notifications if there's trades. The second thing is you need you need SATs to even start using BISC because you need to lock them up in in escrow. Um, and, but I, I've used I've used BISC before. Um, and you know, it's not, it's not as hard as, as you think. I've also gone through the, you know, I had an issue once with a trade and I went through the uh, mediation pro process, is that what you call it? Um, remediation or whatever they call it. And actually found that worked really well. Um, so I would encourage anyone, anyone who's comfortable with, I mean, if you're comfortable to make a bank transfer, for example, I'm, I'm just not, I just don't want to dox myself in, in, in that way where I'm sort of sending people, you know, my, whatever my government name over um, when I'm doing a trade. And so I'm just really uncomfortable using the, the banking rails to facilitate trades. But if you, if you don't have that reservation, I would encourage anyone to check, you know, I would, you know, BISC is great, but, but RoboSats, I believe is, is a lot easier is what I've heard. And so that might be a good place to start to, to get your feet wet. And so, yeah, don't, don't, I wouldn't let the sort of technical things maybe put, put me off. Um, I think, um, you know, if you give it a go, you'd probably be surprised at how easy it was. That's cool. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe I <clears throat> dip, dip my toe in the water there at some point, get over my, my irrational fear of anything complicated. 
Um, but yeah, so it sounds like RoboSet is a good, uh, good service. I know that I've seen online a bunch of people using it and that it continues to uh, exist. They continue to build and it has a good reputation. So if anybody out there listening wants to give it a try, um, give it a try and let us know what you think. That is the builders segment and that launches us into Meta Mike. What are we talking about? Where we left off in the last one, uh, Dash had mentioned um, like Bitcoin, this idea where we see a lot of Bitcoiners talk about how Bitcoin is freedom money and we're spreading that all around the world. Um, you kind of see this in um, organizations like the Human Rights Foundation and like Alex Gladstein. And I think uh, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, Matt O'Dell put out uh, a, a recent series with Bitcoin Magazine, I guess, talking about um, talking about this subject. Um, so this uh, actually maybe maybe that would be a good way to introduce this topic because I think Dash, you've seen this six-part series, right? Yeah. So um, he, he's launching that. Uh, I think it's like one a week, and I think they're up to episode three or four now. So I watched the first three, and exactly. So what he's doing is he's um, Matt O'Dell is into is sort of highlighting a particular kind of like a dissident, um, and so there was a, a woman from Afghanistan. Um, you know, he had and he's had a couple of, um, I guess, cypherpunk types on um, who from, yeah, my understanding is they would be more at least two of the ones that I saw where they were more sort of left left wing types. And, for example, the woman in Afghanistan, what Bitcoin had enabled her to do is to found a company, actually, and where in, in, in a place like Afghanistan, traditionally, it was hard for women to get access to finance because um, that's a permission system whereby if you don't have like permission from a male as a woman, um, at least this is what I've heard. I haven't I didn't verify it, but it, they, they, they were not able to get a bank account, for example. And so Bitcoin had allowed her and the, and the and the females that were working in her operation, you know, to to kind of fund things. And, and they use that as money um, wh where they were denied from the from the banking system. So I think that would, as you say, might be a, a really good place to, 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 to start, because it seems to me that is where the left is benefiting from from Bitcoin. And or at least that's the narrative that, yeah, we're seeing from this this series with Matt O'Dell or, as you said, uh, Gladstein also puts out a lot of content uh, on that point. You're going to convince Mike to not like Bitcoin anymore when you're telling him that it allows women to do things without male permission. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> yeah, we, we won't get into that on this episode. But uh, yeah, so I mean, that's the thing is like when, when it, so, well, actually, one thing I'm curious about is uh, does does the whole series feature on Afghanistan or is it more like, oh, we're going to look at one story from a different country in each episode? And this yeah, one, the it, first one was Afghanistan. It's not so um it's not necessarily focused on countries. It's focused mainly on the stories of particular Bitcoiners who have that kind of background where they're in, I guess, more adversarial environments. Uh, for whatever reason, right? So it's not necessarily even like a focus on leftists or countries, but it's more like, you know, just these are interesting stories of people, I guess, in the, like, I guess maybe there's an emphasis more on the global south or outside the US of, of how people are using uh, Bitcoin to get around censorship. I think that's mainly the theme. Um, so it's not just Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. It's when it comes to this kind of thing, I, like, every, whenever you see, um, I mean, I'm not criticizing Matt O'Dell on this. Uh, I, I like I like Matt O'Dell a lot. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, but whenever I see like these uh, global uh, like 
globalist American empire born media outlets or NGOs or whatever, talking about these countries that are more uh, like typically recognized as enemies of the globalist American empire and democracy <laughs> and places where we need to spread democracy. Like when you'll see the mass media put out messages like that and the the Washington DC and like New York class type people pushing those narratives, my alarm bells go off. Um, and uh, yeah, I've found, uh, generally speaking, I, I view a lot of that stuff as like tools for the um, globalists from like uh, Brussels and London and DC to push their agendas in countries and like bring more countries into the globalist American empire. So if they have some kind of political regime in a foreign country, that's not um, submitting to the demands of the globalist groups, whether it's like the World Health Organization or the United Nations, all of a sudden you're gonna start seeing a lot of stories about like, oh, this, this is a dictatorship and we need to, uh, support these freedom fighters who are rising up to, to fight for like whatever it is it might be like women's rights or xyz like social justice issue um and i kind of get the impression from what i've followed in some in groups like well there and this is basically like the color revolution model right where it, it's it's you'll have a lot of this like non these ngo groups and political activists many many of them are um are just from like these elite uh uh gae organizations like from america or from germany or in england or something and then they're partnering with these uh political activists that they've recruited in uh one of these foreign countries that's not playing ball with the GAE's demands. And uh, so then they, then they basically push the, they, like they, they create political agitation so that they can topple the regime and replace it with a puppet that will like basically become, uh, turn the country into like a puppet state or a vassal state of the GAE. I mean, do you, do you guys like, agree are you, with that? are you implying Sir, are you implying that we are not fully invested in the communist Kurdish nation and that we do not fully support them for ultimately righteous reasons? And are you saying that we do not fully support the hijab revolution? Sir, I don't know what you're implying by this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it's it's unfortunate because I think uh, you, you do start to even see this in in the Bitcoin space, because like the first time I saw this and I was, I was really uh, surprised by it was when it was like right after the El Salvador news, the legal tender Bukele, right? And this was Bukele basically pitting himself against the IMF, which we've talked about before and the, uh, the globalist American empire in many ways, right? And then of, of course you would expect like the mass media the American mass media to to start um, smearing him and stuff. And you would, ex but as a Bitcoiner, you'd expect like, wow, this is really big news and this is really cool what he did. And then you'll, you'll, you, you immediately start seeing like Alex Gladstein or the Human Rights Foundation speaking out, like pra praising him in some sense, but also like making it very clear, speaking out about Kelly, about how he's 
like undemocratic and using those kinds of terms. So I, I think that's kind of the way it rolls. That's 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 the way uh, these groups operate. When like yeah, as soon as as soon as someone poses a threat, they're they're going to be targeted and smeared, and the psyops begin. Also, with uh, who they who they lionize as well. I mean, like cer certain people get um, uh, uh, like Zelensky. Zelensky or uh, Navalny. Now, I don't know anything about Navalny, but like, why? Why you know he gets he's a he's a huge one for um, for uh, the libertarian part of the of the Bitcoin right. community. Where it's like we got to get behind this guy. I'm like, I don't even know who the hell he is. Like, what what do you mean I got to get behind him and send him Bitcoin? I, I like I don't know what he's doing. Like, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, they just like astroturf these people, and then next thing you know, the masses have the flag, like the like the Ukrainian flag in the bio, right? Like. These are people who didn't even know where Ukraine on, was on the map two days ago. And now they're yeah. reading Zelensky videos and putting the Ukraine flag in their bio. Yeah, it's interesting to um, to watch how quickly it, it, it does emerge in, in certain sectors of, of the of the, the Bitcoin community. You, you had mentioned the uh, the Bukele thing before and how, um, you know, how, you know, I'm I, I I've. I've I've liked a, a lot of what he's had to say, but they see a lot of people come out and start um, whining about some of the things um, that he's done with no real knowledge of it, just and just immediately taking up the uh, um, the the declaration that he is he's a dictator or something. It has been really um, uh, unfortunate. There was a, a number of people who uh, were posting that back on when it when you know maybe a year ago, and I you know. They, got, they were promptly muted because they were becoming obnoxious and because you, know, you have real life stories of people that are going like no this this <laughs> things are going well down here what are you doing shut up don't 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 bring more hassle than the IMF is planning on bringing but by you uh, highlighting these stupid uh, tropes about him being a dictator it's making you know it, it's further a cause for which we have no interest we are perfectly happy and behind what's going on here so yeah, well, do you remember when uh, this was shortly after uh, the initial announcement from Bukele, when he basically got brought on the map and no, nobody knew who Bukele was before the uh, uh, where did he announce it? Was it the Bitcoin magazine conference? It's the, like conf 20... the yeah, it's the conference in uh, May, right? The uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Miami like two years yeah. ago or something. Um, yeah, nobody knew who he was before that, but then immediately you start seeing like uh, they had. Uh, it, it was interesting what Bukele did. He, as soon as um, the like puppet protesters showed up, who are like clearly funded by the the GAE in some way, they're like I, I don't. Uh, he actually called them right out for on it, and he I think he he like tweeted out a picture of them and was like, oh, this is a fake protest funded by the IMF. He, he said something like that. It was a very like Trump-like thing to do. And I, I think that was effective. And I, I don't know how, um, um, what's been going on, but it seems like their meddling in El Salvador hasn't uh, taken off because Bukele is like only growing in popularity, right? And he's been able to do everything it seems like he's been able to do most, at least most of the things that he wants to do. He's totally cleaned up the, from what I understand and from what I'm seeing. And like, uh, I think um, Andy, like you were just saying, um, a lot of people on the ground in El Salvador, people who are residents there, citizens of El Salvador are saying like, oh yeah, you, like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You you act like, oh, we're living in a, this like dictatorship. This guy's uh, undemocratic. He's trying to change the constitution. 
like he's painted as this authoritarian, but they're like, yeah, I've been living in El Salvador. This place was basically like the ghetto, dangerous uh, gang violence in the streets everywhere. And now it's getting cleaned up. And if you listen to Western media, but also like human rights groups, all they're going to be telling you is like, oh, uh, martial law, like suspension of human rights. He's he, uh, he's um, violating like the the standards the, uh, of like civilized standards of an uh, international order. It's always uh, curious as to how guys like that can do it, you know, because we're talking, you know, how Bitcoin intersects with left wing politics. Um, he, Bukele, and I don't know if you have other examples of this, but like he seems to be an actual operator within the system. So he understands the left wing um, system well enough to be able to uh, either nullify it or at least has been for the time or counteract it or, or, or work in such a way that he can um, he can maneuver without being impeded by too much, which was, which is uh, rare um, to see because I do think um, left wing political uh, stances usually uh, can roll anybody on the right when it comes to politics. They have such a, a uh, such an advantage for whatever reason on the right when it comes to um, the political game and the um, uh, the uh, the the front uh, you know we're talking color revolutions all that kind of stuff they're they're, they're global um, and you know even international uh, coordination is 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 unmatched so the fact that you know somebody like him can maneuver in that is 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 remarkable yeah I mean he's yeah like to to be able to do it you need to go up against a lot and I mean someone uh, like someone who honestly was uh probably one of the most effective things you're gonna see in a place like america was trump but i mean that was a where he tried to go up against it all but he never like he was completely got completely wrecked basically right like he wasn't able to do anything um and basically he just put on a big show where he's like making fun of people and humiliating them but he never actually wielded any real power and they wielded all the power of all the the, the institutions Right, which which they used to weaponize against them, and uh, like uh, it, it was so easy for them to just mass mobilize the masses, both like in terms of opinion and rhetoric on social media and stuff, but also like in the streets too. Um, whereas someone like Bukele, they he's probably less of a target. So like, if they were as like if if they were willing to spend as much resource as uh, as many resources on demonizing him and smearing him and, and like overthrowing him as they did on as they would on like someone like trump right I, I think i think they probably would be able to do it but uh maybe he'll be able to like kind of stay under the radar long enough to not have that happen to him yeah we'll see i mean i, I hope i hope that's the case Oh, um, as, as we're going down here, we're, we're, we're talking specifics. Can, do you have um, um, kind of a, a way that you define left-wing politics? I have, I have a, a, defi a definition, which I stole from Wikipedia, but I was curious, do you, how do you define left-wing politics? Yeah, well, we, I think we talked about this a couple episodes ago, uh, but um, that's a good question. What, what, what's your definition first? So the one that I stole, it says left-wing politics describes the range of political ideologies that support and seek to achieve social equality and egalitarian 
to Calidarianism, often in opposition to social hierarchy. Left-wing politics typically involve a concern for those in society whom its adherents perceive as disadvantaged relative to others, as well as belief that there are unjustified inequalities that need to be reduced or abolished. Left-wing politics are associated with popular or state control of major political and economic institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we had a longer discussion about this on the on the last one. And I think I think that element of in terms of the theories and the like utopian ideal visions of left wing people, there is that like clear element of being against hierarchy and wanting some kind of flat egalitarian structure, I think. Um, but what it always what what it seems to always result in um is they're very happy to submit to uh, these hierarchical structures and like support the elites as long as they're just like brainwashed into thinking that there are like an enemy group of elites. So it's like, oh, to overthrow, to overthrow Trump, we need to, who's like this elite billionaire from New York, we need to um, support big pharma and like all, all these other, uh, uh, all these other things. I, can I just just into, I don't I don't agree that the left is like the by nature wants flat and egalitarian. For me, it always seems like they want big government, and they and they and they think that people who are kind of left left orientated and then are sort of educated in that school um, can can then centrally plan and kind of improve the life the lives of the population via you know ever increasing government control it seems to me there's always a tendency for the left to want that kind of i would almost say authoritarian regime at least that's my impression i i've never really got the sense that they were against against hierarchy it's just they want to be at the top of the hierarchy is is, is all like the, yeah, the, yeah, the, there's, there's like, all animals are equal but some are more equal than others right yeah, that's why I think there's a bait and switch that goes on. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily conscious by most of them, because I think they, they basically like bait and switch themselves and gaslight themselves into it. Because like when you when 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 they're painting the picture of their vision, it's always like, oh, yeah, yeah, they want maybe they want the state to grow and they'll like explicitly acknowledge that. Um, like there's a lot of communists, right? Like they want everything to be controlled by the state. But um um, they will always paint the picture more of like, as it's like a flat structure where uh, like no, nobody's in charge, we're all in charge together. Uh, but, but of course, it, they always do submit to uh, putting people in charge, right? Like, and, and, and the most recent thing that we, that we saw, at least in the, in the West in the last couple of years is they were very happy to put the technocratic elite in charge, right? Trust the experts, right? right? And it's like the, uh, the WEF thing, you'll own nothing and be happy. But it's like, well, hang on, somebody owns something. It's not like nobody's going to own anything. So it's the same kind of idea, right? It's like, oh, we're all going to be equal, but well, hang on, who's going to be, who's going to be enforcing the laws? Who's going to be, like, in charge of the distribution? Oh, well, that's you know, that's the elite on on the, in the left, right? And I agree, that's maybe that's a bait and switch, and maybe they're baiting and switching themselves. But I mean, it seems to me at this point, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious that that's what's going on. Well, every, yeah, yeah, every, I, I, every revolution ends up doing that, right? You go to you go to Cuba, and the true revolutionaries that were all for the flat uh, flattening of uh, the capitalist structure were the first ones put against the wall. You see it in communist China, um, you know, 
Soviet uh, Soviet Russia, right? Like the the true revolutionaries that believed believe the shtick are the first ones that have to go after they've uh, uprooted society as such. Yeah, I think it was Sol- Solzhenitsyn who I haven't read the book, right? But the Gulag Archipelago, I believe that's the theme. It's like the true believers are the ones that. Or, or, you know, sort of how funny it was to see them end up in the gulag and, and their reaction, their just disbelief <laughs> about the um, about failing the moral purity test, which they inevitably always do. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that will eventually, uh, like, if it, if the West stays on the current trajectory that it's on, I think it's that is what's going to happen because a lot of it gets built up, like all of this tension uh, gets built up, and they'll start to support more and more, just like totally ridiculous and dangerous um policies to go forward because through media brainwashing mainly um they're they've basically built up this idea that like they're victims and like we need to stop this this guy who wants to like these people who are whatever it is like racist white supremacists nazis trump is the new hitler right so like uh, they basically had this narrative built up for them where like it's now or never we need to put an end to this so they'll be willing to support anything to to do that so a lot of it just turns into like do do whatever it takes to punish our enemies or like stop like destroy our enemies because it's it's absolutely necessary otherwise they'll destroy us and then uh and and that's where you would start to see the um their like initial utopian theories start to diverge from what they're what they're willing to support in their day-to-day lives and this can definitely happen on the um this can this can definitely happen on the right wing too where they'll do the same thing and it very much turns into rather than being for something it turns into being against the opposition and uh but but yeah, fundamentally, like just if you look at the theories alone, um, I think hierarchy is one where that's what it would characterize a left wing uh, ideologue is one who kind of in theory denies hierarchical s- social structures and especially something like a monarchy. Whereas like if you're a monarchist, um, I think pretty much everyone nowadays would call you a right wing person. And I mean, in the last episode, we talked about the Pareto principle and, and this is why, like, it doesn't matter because that's just the way it's going to work. Even if you are this like radical left-wing communist or anarchist or something, your revolutionary movement, uh, not everybody is going to be equally participating in it and not everyone's going to be equally competent when it comes to leadership and administration. So even in your anarchic revolutionary movement or communist movement it's 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 always going to culminate in this this one guy or like his inner circle whether it's like fidel castro or or stalin or whoever well i think you've hit on the exact point there mike where they deny maybe the left does have a tendency to like push this idea of utopian idea of egalitarianism and kind of deny hierarchy and i think what they're denying is that that hierarchy is inherent Right. And that the the idea is that by just allowing them to kind of be the central controllers, we can reach this utopia where everybody's equal and everybody's happy. And whatever 
like deficiencies as they would see them are there are in nature they can address those with just kind of this intelligent central planning and we can actually improve on nature and we can get to this we can essentially realize heaven on earth um i, th I think that's ultimately the kind of drive behind a lot of these leftist leftist movements would you would you agree in that yeah yeah they they think that they can scheme up their own system and and, and there are plenty of people in the, in the right wing who do uh who would would think the same where you can just like scheme up your own your own system and then yeah create heaven on earth basically like a man-made heaven on earth which is doomed to fail always um and yeah rather than following the um the, the like divine law and doing what is what is right for yourself and taking personal responsibility not to fix the world around you, but to, to transform yourself and change your own life and your own situation and do what's good for you and the people that you interact with directly and uh, what's moral. But uh, you, you try to uh, change the morality of everyone around you without without undergoing any kind of inner transformation. And, and that can absolutely exist on the right wing too. So in that, I mean, I guess kind of the question with that kind of framework does, can, you know, legitimately, can a left-wing Bitcoiner exist, or is that some kind of an anomaly that will not exist over time? I th I think that there are. So th this goes back to the the initial topic that we 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 got into this whole subject, right? Like, I think a lot of these quote human rights groups and groups that want to spread democracy and uh, maybe will increasingly start seeing seeing the Bitcoin movement used as a tool and a weapon to do that. Um, I don't, I don't think everything about it is bad. I mean, like I, I, I do like Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's good. And uh, there, that element, I, I guess where I think what you were, um, uh, I think the direction you were going in right there, where um, you were tying it into like the whole idea of personal responsibility. Like there is a clear, at least using Bitcoin properly, there is a clear element of personal responsibility. It's very risky. It's much easier to just, uh, um, have your bank manage your money and um, you go in with your driver's license to withdraw money and they verify your identity that way and they're the ones keeping your funds secure. Uh, but if, if you're using Bitcoin the proper way, running your own node and holding your own keys, it's uh, you have to take personally, personal responsibility and it's uh, like intimidating and it can be very overwhelming, but you, you have to overcome that. Otherwise, you're not really using Bitcoin. You're just using a the the next iteration of the co-option of the gold standard where everybody's gold was centralized in these banks and then it got centralized by the government and then everybody's gold got stolen that 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 can absolutely happen to um bitcoin for people who aren't using it the right way who aren't managing their own funds or at least at least don't have the uncle uncle jim managing their funds that they know personally i i don't agree that uh, Bitcoin's going to end up being used that way, but what where maybe I agree with you, Mike, is I think that these the NGO types and like the global American empire is probably going to look at uh, as a kind of the, what the likes of Gladstein and you know the people who are uh, Odell is interviewing are doing, and they're going to be thinking to themselves, and they're not going to like Bitcoin, and they're going to be like you know Bitcoin Bitcoin bad, but 
oh, what if we had a digital dollar and these activists were able to, you know, we'd have the same narrative, the same story, but it was like with a digital dollar, it was with a CBDC. I think that's more the direction that they would be taking things in rather than trying to trying to do that with Bitcoin. Do you, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think we'll I'll, I think we'll see plenty of that. I think we're going to see like narratives at every level. We're going to see psyops at every level, and there will be plenty of people who are who do kind of spread that message of like, oh, this is the new. I mean, they do it with shitcoin already, right? Like, this is the new Bitcoin. This is just like Bitcoin. You can use this instead, and they'll do that with CBDCs. Um, I would be uh, um, like, I have criticisms of like Alex Gladstein and some of the things that he does and says, but I, I don't think I would I wouldn't expect him to do that. Um, I would be, I would actually be quite surprised if he turned into like a, a fiat maxi and like um, started promoting um, not using Bitcoin in a self-sovereign way. I mean, I, I personally think that Gladstein's a good actor, and I think we've got to be careful to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to the dissidents in the, in, in the global south, etc. Because I know, to your point, Mike, 100% agree with you that the NGOs and the GAE use the narrative of these people or, that, or their struggles, if you like, as kind of justification for furthering their own sort of nefarious uh, ends but i do th like at the same time i'm a pleb and i recognize that the people that there are plebs in the global south who like you know may maybe maybe i'm more privileged than them or, or what have you maybe they have struggles but but um ultimately like bitcoin is hope for me and it's hope for them as well and and it's a tool that they're using i think genuinely to kind of improve their own lives and you know when, when you sort of remove politics from it we're just all plebs just trying to get along right and trying to live our lives and bitcoin is a tool that's that's helping people do that and i feel I feel, I feel Gladstein's kind of is sincere in in that's his goal, um, but I, I share the concerns that you have about that then get, getting co-opting. I just don't agree that it would be a Bitcoin thing. It would be like a shitcoiny thing where they they'd say, okay, Bitcoin bad, but blockchain good, and you know, and and, and we're going to do this with CBDCs. I, I, you know, so I believe that's the direction it's going to go. And I, I agree with you that Gladstein would not would not go in that direction. You know, I think he's a good actor. Yeah, well Oh, I mean, I, I think the actually like the the supply of those kinds of actors already is kind of saturated. Like, isn't the I would even say that the entire Ethereum shitcoin movement is kind of doing that, or they have been since for for many years now, right? Like that was kind of the way they framed it as like, oh yeah, the Bitcoin's this self sovereign tool. It's like this cool technology that uh, uh, liberates people and gives them more freedom and control over their their own lives and allows them to opt out of the system, but now we're building this new thing that has more technological um, capabilities, uh, which <laughs> is nonsense itself. But like they, they promote that narrative, and oh. uh, and then they tie, they're the ones partnering with like the the World Economic Forum and all these all these dumb plans. One hundred percent. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna. I was curious. Uh, your guys' opinion on um, speaking of left wing either attacks or whatever, you know, a lot of the Bitcoin mining scene is like, oh, we're, we're, um, we are good for renewables and we're X, X level renewable, things like that, which seems to me a, a bending to a, an opposing, um, ideological stance from the left, which is an environment, uh, this Gaia worshiping environmental stance. Um, do you think, that whole narrative shift where like, oh, we're going to be renewable or we're carbon carbon negative or whatever stupid words they use for it. Do you think that, you know, is, is an attack from the left or is that 
Bitcoin bowing to the left or is it Bitcoin actually being able to uh, be complementary to leftist agenda? Yeah, you, I guess some of the major Bitcoin, including like fairly respected Bitcoin maxis who uh, have, have done that, I think like Sailor has, has used rhetoric like that, right? And I think uh, Blockstream has as well, right? Where, where they promote this idea of like renewable, uh, Bitcoin's a green movement, a green energy movement. Um, I, I don't know how much, like, I think ultimately, yeah, that might be tying into uh, uh, to the, uh, like the, the, the uh, Great Reset type agenda um whether it's like on intentionally like it, it, whether they're doing it intentionally to be subversive or whether they're just responding to like short-term immediate high time preference incentives in front of them i, I think it's probably that the latter really you don't so it, uh your your opinion is that it's not like um something intentional it's it just uh a consequence of of, of rhetoric and trying to stay ahead of the uh the uh the governmental attack Oh, I mean, I, no, I think it's intentional at, at, at a certain level for many, like for a lot of people driving the whole thing. And when it comes to like the ETH people, I would be much more inclined to say like, yeah, they're they're working alongside that consciously, that agenda. But um, like when it comes to like Blockstream or Michael Saylor, I, I, I'm not so sure. I don't know. I would I would be more willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're just responding to high time preference uh, incentives. And uh, they're, they, they don't actually have like some kind of ideological agenda that they want to push. But is that, I, I, I guess, a, a follow up. Yeah. And I, you know, I agree on Blockstream and, uh, and Sailor um, and the ETH, uh, ETH, ETH Max is as well being, you know, driven by a completely different ideological stance, um, which is why, you know, in my opinion, you see all the left wing people over there. They, they, they flow out of Bitcoin almost immediately to ETH. Um, yeah, and I think another way that you can you can tell that that's the case is like a lot of these ETH guys they they use the rhetoric to demonize like uh, so called fossil fuels and uh, like uh, dirty energy, and they they're uh, they're publicly promoting this like this um, agenda not not as like a fine not as like a thing that they're uh, it's like a potential way to profit off of but. Um, they they do i think in many in many cases actually believe it whereas i don't know like you see someone like michael saylor he kind of just uses the buzzwords and he, you don't get the impression that this is he's like a true believer of this um environmentalist like anti-human anti-human flourishing like anti uh um energy consuming movement there, there there are i mean i think uh what's his name alex epstein he, he's been on tftc many times is that his name alex epstein um where he, he he does a really good job of um kind of exposing what that that whole movement is up to if you want more information on that yeah and i you know no that that i i think i agree with you entirely on that one and do you so i mean i guess the other question is is like so from but from that perspective you know we got um is bit i mean I don't know the technicals of, of of mining well enough to be able to have an opinion, a strong opinion. But uh, you know, do this this you know does this carbon negative uh, framing that that some Bitcoin mining people uh, use is that actually could that actually be in alignment with an uh, with a a, a leftist long term 
political ideology or is that more you know is that just kind of that, that'll be gone in the next you know 18 months or something I, I don't think that that's um, so what, what you're talking about is the narrative that the Bitcoiners are coming up with around things like um, you using stranded energy and then also like balancing the power grid and stuff like that. Are, are you talking about that or or, or encouraging yeah. renewables, that narrative? Well, that that and then they, they also talk about how, um, you know, it, it can, you know, they, they do, certain deployments of mining can go into uh, um, can go to yeah what you said. And then it can go into like trash yeah. heaps and and and, yeah, yeah. And, and and clean up dirty 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 whatever so my my take on that is kind of conspiratorial but i and maybe very cynical but i i don't think the left is interested in really the environment and carbon they're interested in control and the whole narrative around we have to reduce our carbon use is just it's a means of of control of the political class of of the population and so and and we had we had touched a little bit earlier in the part about how the left has this tendency to maybe ignore reality or or think they can you know just change reality or make their own reality and i feel like the Bitcoin's narr narrative is based in physics. It's based in, in in reality, and I do think that Bitcoin is a great tool, and there's a lot of synergy with the with the energy producers. Um, and the fact is that we need energy to flourish. Uh, you know, humans need energy to flourish. Bitcoin helps make the energy production more you know balanced and um, you know kind of sustainable, and also um, um, you know just 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 helps us helps us to 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 enhance the amount of energy that we're using. And the, and the more energy that we use, that's actually a good thing. That means more flourishing. And the, and the, and the data is absolutely overwhelming on that. You just can't deny it. Um, and I, but but I think that to go back to our point about maybe the different um, you know personality of the left and right. You know for the for the right, you look at the data and you sort of make your opinions um, based on that and what you see, and then that's reality and that's what nature's telling you. And, and we need energy to flourish as human beings. But to the left, there's this tendency that says no. Well, you know, we our, our narrative is that we, we people need to have less. We need less humans, and they need to ha start using less energy. And so you know, I. I, I just don't think i just think we're completely talking as on uh, cross purposes i don't think the bitcoin narrative is 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 in any way like influencing the left or or, the, or or that they care about what we say right because to them it's just like we have to use less energy and, and energy is demonized and it's just it's just a means of control is is my take on that yeah this uh, this might be a good uh uh stopping point because i think we uh uh we, we plan to only go for about an hour and a half today right all right well for Doomer Dash, Meta Mike, you can find us on Twitter, Noster at Tokyo Citadel. Find us online, tokyocitadel.com. Remember to support us with a thousand sat boost on Fountain App or on another podcasting 2.0 app. Building sovereignty, privacy, and hope into the Tokyo Citadel. See you next time.